Hey everyone, this is Last Jackson of Detroit Bad Boys, and on this week's podcast, we have SB Nation's Sirit Sohi on to discuss Pistons' new head coach, Dwayne Casey. Sirit and I talk about Casey's flexibility as a coach, how he should pair Andre Drummond and Blake Griffin, and her infamous, but not long for this world, Twitter handle. As always, we appreciate your continued support of the podcast. The best way to do that is to share, like, and leave comments. Please leave comments on the post on Detroit Bad Boys. It's the best way for us to build the podcast according to what the fans want. In order to do that, though, you have to follow DetroitBadBoys.com, the best place on the internet for Pistons news and analysis this season. With all that said, it's time to go to work. Welcome to the Detroit Bad Boys podcast. I'm your host, Lazarus Jackson. I'm really pleased today to be joined by uh, SB Nation's own Siret Sohi. Siret, how are you? Good. How are you? I'm doing really well. I'm doing really well. Uh, the reason we had you on is because you're something of a Toronto Raptors expert, and uh, we want to talk about Dwayne Casey. So are you ready? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So I guess my first question is, what is, in your mind, what's the definitive positive moment of Dwayne Casey's time in Toronto? Ooh, uh, a moment. The moment, uh, it's hard to come up with a moment because when I think about the best parts of Dwayne's tenure, it is the accumulation of, of good habits throughout a season. And also even, even throughout his tenure, just steady incremental improvements. It ultimately didn't, push the needle where the for the Raptors far enough to where they wanted to go. But when you think of the way this team started to uh to the way that uh that they look now, you know, despite the fact that they've been swept out of the playoffs by the same team twice, they they are very, very clearly owned by LeBron James. But aside from from that, I mean there's been They've improved their win totals consistently, breaking franchise records, improving offensively and defensively, a lot of individual improvements for a lot of players. So, you know, it's hard for me to think of a moment. That's actually a question, though, that I that I asked a, a lot of the players when I was working on an article about Casey. And, and the thing that they said was in uh, in February at the All-Star game, just – just to see him finally get credit, he was, uh, I think for a long time, he was a pretty underrated coach that, whose whose full skill set was never really acknowledged. He was considered a player coach, despite the fact that he was the architect of, uh, of the Dallas defense that slowed down LeBron James and ultimately won a championship. So, you know, I think uh, a, a lot of, a lot of his his players enjoyed watching him coach all-star, even though he didn't get to, uh, he didn't get to coach his players. Just, uh, just seeing him get some recognition. He got a lot of, a lot of love from from LeBron actually at the time. Just uh, saying that he that he really liked the coaching staff and uh, and the way that he did things. So that was kind of kind of his coming out party. 
Okay. That's that's an interesting answer. And the reason I asked that question is because when I was like envisioning in my head like what defines like Dwayne Casey's time in Toronto, like I couldn't think of like a single like positive like moment. Like maybe it's that like that that Lowry three uh from half court against Indiana like a couple years ago. But even then that's like not something tactical or uh like necessarily under his control. It's just like something that like means a lot to the to the Raptors franchise. So I that was like I was hoping that like maybe you'd paid uh you'd seen something I hadn't like with with a closer eye on Toronto. But like I think that tells you something about Casey that uh there's nothing really stand out about him um in his time in Toronto. Uh you know given how it ended and everything. I mean given how it ended uh, is Dwayne Casey like still in Toronto if the Raptors win game 1 if they don't get swept? I mean there's there are so many scenarios under which Dwayne Casey is, in, is still in Toronto. Um, if he had made, there's there's a positive end of it and a negative end of it. Of course, if he had made better in-game adjustments, maybe the Cavs or, or maybe the Raptors did a little bit, would have done a little bit better in that series. I mean, I think we all watched what LeBron James did. I don't think that he was he was going to lose that series by by any means, but they definitely could have won game one. But game one is also a really hard one to really, really pin on Dwayne because of the way that they lost. They missed two wide open Fred Van Vliet threes, a four tip ins, just a whole, a whole bunch of things that kind of start to make you, uh, make you believe in curses, really. But I mean, if there's one thing you were going to take away from that game, it was probably the fact that Fred Van Vliet was still on the floor. He's just not a. Like I love Fred, but he's uh he's not a guy that should uh, should change everything for a contender. He's very important psychologically to the team, and he brings a lot as far as just being a guy that doesn't have a lot of weaknesses and can space the floor. He's a solid asset to a championship team, but he can't be your end all be all. And their reliance on him at the end just to be the the guy who was able to be stone faced and and get the Raptors over the hump as somebody who hadn't really exper- experienced too much of, of their failures before, that kind of relying on something so flimsy kind of, uh, well, the result bore itself out for sure. And there were other in-game adjustments that he definitely could have made. OG Ananobi definitely should have been playing more minutes. CJ Miles should not have been guarding anybody on the floor at any time, especially Kevin Love. So, yeah, there's a lot of scenarios that don't paint, paint Casey in a good light that uh, – you know, would uh would have him still coaching in Toronto at the same time. And the thing that I think is more important is if Dwayne Casey was such a, was never such a good coach, this team wouldn't have would have never been in a situation where their expectations were so high that they could get fired because their coach underperformed in the playoffs. So there's there's definitely two sides to it. And I think uh I think for a team like Detroit, the second point is definitely a little bit more relevant. I don't really think – I mean, if, if Detroit gets to the point where they're criticizing Casey's in-game adjustments, I think we can call his coaching uh, tenure there a success is, uh, is what I'm saying. No, that's totally fair. Uh, that was – the in-game adjustments was definitely a critique that was leveled at Stan Van Gundy. So I know there are a lot of Detroit Pistons fans who aren't very happy right now that they're they're getting a coach with that same weakness – uh, that was something that was really apparent to them, and so they're looking at they're bracing themselves for you know three plus more years of that. Mm-hmm. But uh, 
you know, that's kind of what the Pistons have been attempting to do under Tom Gores. They've been attempting to be a consistent playoff team. Uh And so I think your point about uh, the expectation level being really high and getting to a place where the expectation level is really high is, I think, something that uh, the Pistons are looking for and a big reason why uh, they chose Dwayne Casey. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think, and I, I understand that criticism from fans, especially because, you know, if you're a passionate fan and you want to analyze coaching, you really have very little to go off of outside of in-game adjustments. In reality, though, that, yeah, like probably for a team that was as close to the cusp of the playoffs as Detroit was, I'm sure that was a very important factor. At the same time, when you're that close, almost everything is an important factor. And to focus just on that with this team that has, I mean, in my estimation, much bigger problems than that and uh, has, to, has to figure out a lot of stuff is uh, probably just not the right the right way to go about it. I mean, if, if we're looking at, at what Casey can do for that team, I think one one of the things that's important to look at is the relationship that he had with uh, with Demar and Lowry, which are very very different relationships. But I think both of them paint him in a in a pretty positive light. Demar is a guy that he coached for for seven years and really helped develop his game a lot, and had a great deal of mutual respect and trust for for a long time, which is really hard to have with a star player, especially when when you aren't succeeding or living up to expectations. And uh, with, with Lowry, I mean, that relationship was very up and down at times. There were times that they weren't getting along, but at the same time, Casey was the first coach to ever be able to consistently get through to Lowry and, uh, and have him continue to hear him for, for a long period of time. Before that, he had never really really clicked with uh with any other coach so grading on that curve he does a does a pretty good job with Lowry looking at the changes that they made this offseason I don't really know how much of that happens without Casey and without the fact that he had a pretty good relationship with both of those guys and and they could trust him I mean DeMar kind of straight up said that you know it's it was a lot easier to to hear the changes that needed to be made from Casey because of their relationship because they have a, mu- a lot of mutual uh, mutual affection for each other and uh, and respect. So, I mean, those are those are things that I think are definitely a little bit harder to see from from the outside looking in. But you know, a lot of this stuff probably would have never happened if uh, if Casey wasn't so well liked. And I, I think that's something that Pistons fans or at least a uh, at least media and people around the team will kind of come to find as well as he's just uh, but he has a lot of weaknesses as a coach I think but he has a lot of strengths and he's also just a very decent and respectful guy he's very hard to dislike and I think when you have those traits and you also bring a great deal of experience to the table then it's uh it's hard not to connect with almost everybody. Okay. So rewinding a little bit, uh you spoke about the the change in offensive system that uh Casey installed this year after uh, Masai Ujiri's infamous culture reset mm-hmm. uh, comments the previous season. Do you think we'll see 
do you think Casey will bring that like with him to Detroit or do you think he'll kind of revert back to uh, the previous isolation heavy style uh, that he utilized in Toronto? Yeah, that's, that's really hard to say. I think first of all, like just the, the personnel in, in Detroit is so different and it's also last year was such a growth year for, for Dwayne as a coach. He became so much less rigid about his rotations, about playing young players, about, the way that an offense was supposed to be run, he is, he's a bit of a taskmaster and for him to be able to just look at so many rookie mistakes and clink shots as okay as part of the process was, uh, was I think a big change for him. He dealt pretty well with it and ultimately won him the coach of the year award. The development of, uh, of that bench was a direct result of the fact that they really let them play with, without a leash and develop and find things that, uh, that work for them. So, you know, we'll see, we'll see if he'll, he'll maintain that. It's really, I I, I can't really say if, uh, if that's going to be something that, that maybe that was only, only the case because that was the culture mandate and maybe he'll want to do things his own way with a, with a new five-year deal with his team. But I mean, the one thing that I immediately thought of with, with Detroit was, uh, was miss threes to be honest because like I think I think Detroit is kind of in a similar situation as Toronto was especially after the trades that they made they lost their two best three-point shooters now they have a bunch of guys who can like kind of shoot threes or are developing their threes or like they have shooters that are not necessarily guys that you want to be starting and they have some young talent but nobody really sticks out as a guy that uh that can carry you towards the future so I think working on the margins with those guys and being able to live with a lot of mysteries, I think this whole team is going to have to live with a lot of mysteries and just just being willing to play the math on that one could be something that uh, that is beneficial to to the team. Yeah, that's fair. I know a lot of fans, when you're speaking about uh, player development or the kind of turn, turning over the new leaf uh, with regards to playing the young kids and, and not necessarily like worrying about uh, the mm-hmm. in-game results, a lot of fans are excited to see what Casey does development wise with uh, Stanley Johnson, uh, Luke Kennard, and even like Henry Ellenson, um, a guy who the Pistons like used a first round pick on and who hasn't looked like an NBA player uh, to date. Um, So with, with the development uh, that Casey kind of oversaw, did he, did he oversee that development? Was that something that the, uh, the staff under him uh, did a lot of, a lot of work for, um, we obviously like don't know which members of his staff are coming with him mm-hmm. to Detroit. So I'm just curious: is like, is that is that Casey or is that the guys under him? You know, I think it's always a little bit of both. I think you definitely have to credit a lot of. Uh, I, know, I always go back and back and forth and stuff like this because uh, I think Casey's Casey's a great delegator, but that's also one of those things where you can kind of flip and say he doesn't do anything, and I don't really think that's necessarily fair either. We see a lot of uh, we see a lot of great coaches in the league get get credit for that, and in a way that I don't think uh, think he necessarily has. Jama worked a lot with uh, with young players. I think he deserves a lot of credit. Nick Nurse, who's now going to be coaching the Raptors as a as head coach, he was basically the architect behind the new offense. So it's. It'll be interesting to see how much of his staff comes to be on, like to be completely level. I think uh, the the more of his staff that comes, the better. That is one of the best coaching staffs uh, in the league, and they're gonna they're obviously gonna miss Nick. He was obviously their uh, their top guy, but Rex did a great job with uh, really 
getting a defense set up that was very strong without really any solid defenders in the starting lineup outside of OG Ananobu, who's a who's a rookie, and then to to be able to get that get that young bench, which you know to to their credit has a lot more defensive ability than uh, than the starters, but is still very young and still you know early in the season was uh, was playing way too much off of instinct is uh is pretty impressive so you know for the Pistons sake I do hope that also for continuity's sake as well that uh that some of uh that some of the assistants go along with yeah. them that's pretty interesting because Casey uh that's that's a, again that's a kind of a lot of what Stan Van Gundy was after um a top you know top half of the league defensive team without a premier perimeter defender um uh develop having an assistant coaching staff that uh, he had confidence in and uh guys guys mm-hmm. like bob buyer who were responsible for uh, ish smith like shooting uh, more threes in the second half of the year so i'm i'm curious to see mm-hmm. kind of uh th- there does very much appear to be uh, a desire to maintain and improve upon the uh, the team that stan van gundy built with Dwayne casey and i'm wondering and i and other pistons fans are I mean, desire or no yeah. other choice, really. Well, I mean, it, I guess so. You could, you could tank, right? You could, you could do certain things, oh. but ownership yeah. has not shown an appetite to tank, and so it's not, it's not going to happen. It's unrealistic, right? What? Not to, to get too much into uh, into this topic, but like, what what is the the pathway that that they would use to tank? I think it was it was definitely easier before the Blake Griffin trade. Like, don't get me wrong, but uh, I, there are there is a small but vocal section of uh, Pistons fandom that is willing to uh, sell low on Andre Drummond and uh, sell low on Reggie Jackson. If I guess I guess if you trade Reggie Jackson, I don't know how how low you can sell him for. But uh, there is a, a section of Pistons fandom that's kind of willing to to write out. Uh, Blake's contract for a couple years and just be bad around him and and see where you go uh, with the draft uh, with the with the new lottery rules uh, enabling teams that you know don't necessarily finish with the with the absolute worst record to get the number one pick Um, you you know it's possible it's it's not the path I would take it's not the path that ownership has decided to take and I think that's that's probably mm-hmm. for the best, but yeah, no, there, you know, some Pistons fans definitely can, can see that path and would like to take it. I think a lot of that is just the desire to be Philadelphia. Uh, and mm-hmm. without uh, taking into account that if you try to be Philadelphia, you could also be Orlando. Yeah. I mean, you gotta, you gotta have the right ownership and you gotta hit your picks and like, I mean, let's face it. When was the last time Detroit hit on a pick? Andre Drummond. And that was, you know, what, seven years ago? Six years ago? Yeah. Yeah, Yeah, it's not great. And uh, actually, and in fairness to the Pistons at the time, Andre Drummond was a guy that the whispers were that, okay, he seems good, but he's going to be a bust. So it did, that wasn't like a no-brainer move. Yeah. So they do deserve credit for that. But this isn't really, like, unless they were to overhaul everything. That's also an interesting aspect of this whole thing. And I, I, I guess with, I was, um, I mean, Tom Ziller in his, uh, in his newsletter today for, for SB Nation kind of made the good point that despite the fact that they haven't uh, haven't hired 
a new GM, it's not like they have a lot of flexibility. So maybe it's okay for, for Casey to get hired before the new GM. And obviously has a ton of job security right now too. But do you find that at all weird? I find it a little bit suboptimal, but not at all weird. Um, Ed Stefanski, who uh, has hired as like shadow president of basketball operations, is functionally like making all the decisions in the front office. So it doesn't really okay. matter who the GM is. And it's been reported that what Stefanski is looking for in a GM is kind of a younger guy to to mold and, and bring up. Uh, the Ed Langdon has come up a lot. Um, if you recall, like early on in the process, guys without any front office experience, like Brent Berry were mentioned, uh, Shane Battier was a candidate. So like younger guys who are either like fairly recently out of the league or like, you know, in their early to mid 40s who uh, they could kind of mold, not necessarily an established guy like a, like David Griffin's name was never mentioned, despite the fact that like he would be right. you know, very clearly like a, a great candidate for the job. So it's the search has been uh, different. I was actually going to ask you about uh, what your impressions were of the the deliberateness of of the search. That was my nice way of saying it's taken a long time. Um, in Detroit. Yeah, in Detroit, for the front office. Yeah, I mean, sorry to ask that because I mean, I feel like everybody's been talking about how Toronto is a. Took took the longest time possible, really, to to not hire a to, to not hire a head coach. But I mean, I think it's kind of it's always a little bit odd if uh, if you hire your coach before your GM, just because of organizational synergy. But at the same time, well, the way that you've explained it now, that kind of makes sense. And so, like you get as long as Stefanski is going to be the one that continues to. Uh, to make the larger decisions while whoever they hire as, as GM is, uh, is kind of just being grown into that role. That does, that does make a lot more sense. Stavonsky, by the way, was part of the group that hired Dwayne Casey in Toronto as well. So he is clearly a big fan. So to kind of switch gears a little bit and uh, you, you had a really nice Blade Griffin trade column. Even though, like, I agreed, I disagreed with most of it. I still like appreciated like your <laughs> thoughts and what you were saying. Uh, it's it's come out that the Griffin trade like wasn't a hail mary for for Stan Van Gundy, even though uh, he did get fired. So it's it's hard to like that's six of one, half dozen of the other. But uh, it was it was from ownership. They were looking for somebody who could sell tickets in Detroit, somebody that uh, they thought could lead them to to the playoffs uh, in the future. Mm-hmm. Um, but the piece they got in Blake Griffin isn't someone I think that instantly kind of stood out as a uh, as a classical fit with the rest of the roster. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in your opinion, uh, moving forward, do you think uh, Blake Griffin and Andre Drummond can coexist on the basketball court together? Uh, I mean, that's, that's pretty tough because, I mean, if I think about it in terms of the offense that Dwayne Casey ran last year, either of them could really naturally fit into the Jonas role. Probably with uh, Blake probably taking about the same amount of shots as Jonas took from uh, from the three, just like kind of that sparing, keep him honest amount. And, uh, you know, I think they could both do it separately. <laughs> you know, it just, uh, I mean, Drummond was having, Drummond was having such a great offensive season before, before Blake showed up. And, you know, I think Blake in a, in a spread out offense would, uh, would have this, a similar effect. Uh, and, but it's just kind of with them together, it's, it's tough because when you look at the synergy that 
Griffin and DeAndre Jordan had, that didn't build overnight. Like that was a very, it had a very, very split second understanding of where the other guy was going to be. And also DeAndre could just get up for everything. And Drummond is obviously very athletic too, but just, just, just a little bit of a step below where you can't really, like you shouldn't be throwing like the worst passes in the world. At least, uh, at least in my opinion. So, I mean, it's really, it's hard for me to imagine them co- coexisting in the modern NBA. They both really like to operate from the elbows. That's something that we've seen them do a good job as far as just, you know, finding cutters, running dribble handoffs, making face-up moves. Like, it's a very, it's a fruitful spot for both of them, but not when one of the other guys is on the floor. And I think, I think there's ways to work around that we've we've seen it happen there's also ways to completely play into that especially if this is a roster you're going to be locked into you might as well just be like okay let's let's find a really big small forward and just crash and and try to win the mathematic game there I think that could be a direction that they go but it's not going to be like there's no natural pretty fit in my opinion okay that's fair I mean that's also understandable I was just curious about that because of Casey's I guess, proclivity to play Jonas and Ibaka together. And uh, Jonas like just started shooting threes this season, um, but he, he had worked on extending his range for, mm-hmm. I think, as long as he had been there. Um, and, you know, there are uh, Instagram videos of Andre Drummond, like taking 18 footers, whether or not that's, that's a good idea for uh, under any coach, like remains to be seen. But um Casey has some experience trying to uh, integrate uh, one stretch E big, uh, mm-hmm. like in Blake Griffin slash like Ibaka, and one like more uh, more rim oriented Ben and like Jonas versus Andre mm-hmm. Drummond. Um, so I was just c- curious as to like how uh, you thought that would yeah. be moving forward. I mean, like those are interesting comparisons, but like I think I think the place where it kind of gets lost is that. Jonas is probably on the level of Blake as a shooter, and Serge is just much better than both of those guys, just as far That's as fair. consistency and his reps go and the respect that he gets from a defense. But Casey showed a reluctance to play uh, Abaka by himself, like at center. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, and that's something we saw a little bit of last season from Blake in his limited time here, like with bench units and stuff. So mm-hmm. I think that offers like some flexibility with regards to No, I think to he'll be very flexible about it. Like I, I, I'm just, I'm personally a little bit, I think Casey will try a lot of different lineups and he'll, if, if there's, if something's going to work, he'll probably stumble into it. If he carries over that same philosophy that he had this year in Toronto, which, like like I said, is kind of a question. It's a matter of whether he wants to do things his own way or if he wants to, you know, carry over the stuff that he learned. Then, you know, I think he's definitely going to try everything. It, I was more speaking to my pessimism about it working out. Ah, uh, okay. I see. Yeah. I, as far as Casey's offensive system, I think that's something a lot of Pistons fans are worried about simply mm-hmm. because if if he doesn't if he decides to go with like a more isolation heavy offense the pistons like don't have the talent or mm-hmm. it just like really appears like the pistons don't have the talent to make that kind of system work offensively yeah like i don't think uh, i don't the raptors weren't iso heavy offense because of casey they were iso heavy because they had demar and kyle and not a lot of guys who could create off the dribble or do much outside of them or really even that much floor spacing I don't really think that 
I mean, maybe he will, but I, I, I have a hard time thinking that Casey will look at that the roster construction in just in Detroit and think that ISOs are uh, are the way to go. I'd probably see a lot more dribble handoff stuff. Um, probably staggering the minutes of uh, of Blake and Drummond, which again I know kind of flies in the face of of the Raptors this year because they have that all bench unit. But I mean, if you look at years prior, you really no problem staggering those guys. He always. For example, the year before, Kyle Lowry in the bench was one of their one of their best units. So I think there's there's a good deal of male- malleability there, and I think uh, I think he'll he probably won't look at that team and uh, and say you know let's let's isolate. At the same time, it's it's also a squad that's kind of hard to it's really hard to look at the Pistons and and figure out what their offensive identity should be. So it should be interesting to see what he what he thinks. No, that's fair. And uh, the so the previous identity was uh, a pick and roll heavy attack, and mm-hmm. then at the beginning of this year, um, they went to a more uh, dribble handoff based uh, cutter orientated perimeter shooting uh, offense, like with Andre Drummond kind of like operating as the as the hub, mm-hmm. uh, and that 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 seemed to do a lot for him both offensively, like as a distributor, not like a, a Jokic level distributor or anything crazy like that, but just like as a guy who um, didn't no longer had to shoot to feel involved in the offense. Right. And it also, I think uh, simultaneously, like the, the decision to have him hedge really hard on defense, like kept him involved in like mm-hmm. what was happening defensively and, uh, and bringing Blake in kind of uh, altered the plans for, for both of those. That's one of the more depressing things about the whole trade was, uh, I mean, Drummond went from one assist per game to four in one season. Like, that's unprecedented. Yeah. It was a guy who, like, I in my life, I would have never thought of him as a passer. And, you know, hopefully, I don't know, maybe they'll find a way to recreate that. That'd be, that'd be good. But, again, like, with both those guys in there, it's just a little bit harder. Well, I think they can do some of that by staggering Blake and Dre, which is, like, not the point of, playing bringing them in so you bring them in so they can play together but um there was a a lot of success um later in the year when blake like went down with the ankle injury and they returned to kind of uh the mm-hmm. the, the offense they'd run before um it's not mm-hmm. like he forgot how to run those type of plays so you can imagine right. a world in where like he's he's running with bench units as as that hub and uh you know blake comes in like later in the quarter and he's uh, his mind is like involved in the game and that he's not like checked out and so you're you're getting the best out of both of them mm-hmm. um, and you can also imagine a world and when you know blake is running blake's the five and you're running a five out offense or, or something some facsimile of that and it's uh you know the the talent on the wings and the talent at the guard spots are still in question but uh, you can you can imagine a world like when that's possible. Um, yeah, and I'd also say like I mean they just they didn't have a lot of good high low chemistry after the trade deadline, and that's something that you know naturally you would expect. Uh, you don't really you don't really expect two big men to have great passing chemistry with each other. But maybe after a full training ga- camp and Blake being one of the best big man passers in the league, and with the strides that Drummond's made, maybe they can find some sort of way to work together that they really didn't have uh have this season i felt like they kind of always got in each other's way and like once they just hopefully kind of learn to 
you know, crash at the right moments or what side of the court is one guy going to be on or what side of the paint rather when I'm on this side of the elbow type of stuff is, uh, I think, going to help them a lot too if they can figure that out. There was out. also a lot of critique about the first stand and not being creative in, in using those two guys, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there weren't a lot of possessions where Blake was the pick and roll ball handler, which I think is something that you don't want to obviously like use that as your primary uh, offensive attack. But that, I think that was something that uh, that was underutilized for sure. Um, mm-hmm. There was like less high low than than people would have liked. Um, the Blake and uh, Reggie Bullock had like a really solid two man game. Strangely enough, Reggie Bullock was really important yeah. for the Pistons, um, and so mm-hmm. I think there was a desire to to lean on that because it was working. And so uh, there wasn't as much uh, offensive creativity as there could have been. And so, like, you know, we are hopeful that with an offseason to envision, like, how this Mm -hmm. is going to go, that we do see more uh, creativity and more uh, more usage of of those two on the court together. Yeah, I mean, there were, like, Bullet kind of essentially became Blake's Redick, in a sense, like, just running a bunch of picks together and... uh, with Bullock's ability to shoot and just kind of put it on the floor as well. It, I think that was like, that's something that I think can definitely carry over. Be another, one of the, the other fun things that they could kind of do probably work better when drones on the game could, could probably work, uh, work otherwise is uh, when Blake was on the Clippers and he was being posted up a lot of the times, Chris Paul, uh, would go and uh, just set a screen for him in the low block, and the defense would have absolutely no clue what to do. And uh, I mean, that's a, that's definitely something you can do with Reggie. Yeah. I think. Yeah, Stan would never try anything like that. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, and then it's not like they got a huge opportunity to either. I think uh, Reggie Blake and Dre only played like five games together, and only had like less mm-hmm. than fifty minutes on the court together. I think. I think that's probably the biggest positive that Pistons fans can take take away. I mean, this team healthy would make the playoffs. You you are preaching to the choir. <laughs> <laughs> and that's something I think you could have said for uh for the last 2 years about about the Pistons, but mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately like that that just hasn't been the case. Um, yeah. I I tweeted earlier today that like uh so Nick Nurse is uh the head coach of the Toronto Raptors and if if LeBron goes west and uh, the Raptors are like the the three seed again, like Nick Nurse is going to look at like a genius, and Dwayne Casey's going to kind of and depending on how the Pistons season goes, Dwayne Casey's going to kind of like shake his head and just like sigh like at what could have been. And it was pointed out to yeah. me that uh, so you could say the same thing for Stan Van Gundy if the Pistons have success. Uh, yeah, yeah, I mean it's possible. It's a uh, that's just kind of a that is one of the consequences for being the guy in that type of situation for that long. It's unfortunate, but it happens that way sometimes. And that's, that's ostensibly one of the benefits of being the guy is that uh, it's on you when it's, when it succeeds and it's on you when it fails. So clear chain of command, you know who to fire. Mm -hmm. (laughs) All right. So um, I guess there's only really one question left to ask uh, Sarah. Uh, does it matter who the Pistons take at 42 next week? <laughs> <laughs> you know, if they can actually, if they can steal the Raptors scouts, that would be the better move, I think. <laughs> you think uh, you jury would let some of those guys go? <laughs> no. <laughs> no. Def- and def- definitely not to, uh, to a division rival. Uh, all right. Well, thanks again for for coming on. I really appreciate it. Uh, congratulations on um, the the full time life at SB Nation. 
Um, Thank you. Do you want to let the people know like what, what the best place to, to read your work is and how to find you and talk to you if they want to? Uh, yeah, sure. Uh, luckily, like you said, uh, it's a full-time life. I no longer have to plug many outlets. Uh, you can find me at SB Nation. I just did a Q&A with, uh, with Landry Chamet. Chamet? Ooh, oops. <laughs> I should uh, should definitely know how to pronounce the last name of the guy who I did a Q&A with, but I guess uh, I guess I kind of told on myself there a little bit, and I wrote something about LeBron and Curry and, and the changing nature of, uh, of selfless basketball this, uh, this week. You got to shout out your Twitter handle because it's one of the best ones on Twitter. Uh, Damien Trillard, and it might not be long for the world anymore. I'm getting, I'm getting kind of over it. Oh, uh, that's, so that's unfortunate. I might, I might go the professional route. It's so distinctive. I'm just, I'm just kind of sick of people thinking I'm a Blazers fan or a Dame fan. Uh, I mean, just, uh, you know, <laughs> I want to be able to, I want to be able to talk shit about the Warriors without somebody just coming back with some stuff about Dame and then I have to explain that I'm not a fan and I've already I've already lost the battle once I'm explaining stuff like that so it's you know it might be a time time right. for a change well whatever it is don't do something like super boring like like SS like S Sohi at SB no I'm doing I'm doing Sirit Sohi I'm sorry but that's what's happening oh no alright alright that's what I feel like I, I... <laughs> it's already available of course because nobody has the name Sirit Sohi fair enough fair enough Thank you so much again for coming on to the podcast. Um, yeah, no problem. I'm Lazarus Jackson. Um, you can find me on Twitter at LazChance at L-A-Z-C-H-A-N-C-E. Um, this has been the Detroit Bad Boys podcast, and we will talk to you guys, mm, I don't know, probably before the draft, maybe after the draft. Haven't figured that part out yet. See you guys later. <laughs>